Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. We have had meeting number 57 in Roma. Novak Djokovic against Rafael Nadal in the final. Somewhere that one of those two guys have been in every single year since 2005. And in the end, it was Rafael Nadal coming away with his 10th title. Uh, 7-5, 1-6, over Novak. Joel, takeaways. I just think it was just an incredible effort from both of them. You know, there was a, uh, there was a book and a movie made years ago. It was called Seven Days in May about an attempt to invade the U.S. government by yeah. the military. So call this Five Days in May. And look what these guys did. Look at Nadal beating Sinner, Shapovalov, uh, who faced two match points, Zverev, Opelka, and now Novak. Novak beating Taylor Fritz, Davida Fokina, Tsitsipas from a, and, and look at Novak, what he did yesterday, what he did in the, on the Saturday, closing out his quarter after being down, winning a three set semi that went into the night. Then these two playing a terrific, compelling final. It's just, it just is amazing how great both Novak and Rafa are. How many times is Rafa going to fool us into thinking that this might be the year that he loses or he falls apart on clay? Um, you know, it's so funny. I had three different uh, texts from people saying after the Shapovalov match that they thought for sure Nadal would just withdraw from the tournament because he looked tired. Um, you know, I had... People, I saw people tweeting that um, his forehand's off, but he's just playing himself into form. I mean, some people see Rafa and they're looking for the aging, right? They're looking for, oh, he's falling apart, he's tired, you know, whatever. But I look at him, maybe I'm glass, glass half full. I look at him and I see, well, there he's just playing himself into form as he always does. Well, and also, you know, it's interesting about this. I wrote this the other day. There's a lot of talk about the tally, the tally and the grand slams and all the titles these guys are going to win, all these numbers, all this. And then there's the rally, which is known as the point, the match, the thing in front of you. Remember once when uh, late in Jimmy Connors' career, I was at a press conference. And as often happens at a press conference, you kind of begin the statement, the question with a, with a statement about some numeric achievement. And there's always something when an icon gets into the 30s where you say, you know, this is your 875th, whatever, your 32nd, this. And mm -hmm. Connor says, you know, that's all well and good, but I can't think about that. I've got to worry about the match I'm playing tomorrow. Hmm. And in a way, I think it's important from a storytelling standpoint to remind ourselves of that. So instead of viewing these people from sort of the, the glass window 200 miles away about their data, like they're just going to exist as a series of statistical achievements, to dig into the fact that Okay, here's Rafa playing in Rome. 
here's Novak playing in Rome and they're just about, it's just about playing tennis matches. It's not, they don't exist for our tally pleasure. So, and you're so right, Amy, you yeah. look at the way Rafa is, um, yeah, people, they've been watching the aging on him since about 2006. <laughs> <laughs> because, because of the injuries he's suffered and the physicality and it's kind of fascinating to ponder these contenders but look at these guys 15 years in and still playing great tennis he's losing his hair but he's not losing any tennis matches that's kind of the, <laughs> the net net here joel did you see the the nadal quote prior to the the final it was it was after the semifinal victory because it, it's very close to what you what you're just describing and it caught my eye uh he said um he said someone asked him about his Roland Garros preparation and he said it is the joke it's playing Djokovic your ideal preparation for the French and he goes this isn't preparation this is Rome uh, oh, <laughs> nice. nice and that really caught my eye I mean this is Rome you know we look at this as some kind of lead up and I think in a way we are right to do so because we know that the history books will will remember the French in 2021 far more than it'll remember Rome in 2021. But from his standpoint and his mindset, I, I think that's just very illuminating. He's trying to win Rome. This isn't about the French. Right, and so they don't exist. This is where it's important to kind of think that the, the storyline narrative we sometimes wish to impose on the year is not, it's like the, I wrote this about Nadal. I said, you know, we look at, yeah, history is looking backwards, but life is lived forwards. So we just have to be in that moment. It's, and, and you just have to say, here I am is what I'm doing. You're right. Nadal isn't, Nadal isn't buying to construct a, a media guide mosaic of the year. He's just trying to win today's tennis match and play who's in front of him. But again, to look at the totality of the week that both of these guys did, you know, Novak had had a so-so clay season and look how tested he was in those two matches before the final and look how well he played. What a clutch performer. Same with Nadal. I mean, facing match points early in the tournament. And you see these guys just roam for its own sake. Roam for its own sake is what Nadal is trying to talk about instead of just, you know, what we sow, you know, towards Paris, towards preparation. You know, it's like, like it's a primary in, a, in an election. He's gathering delegates. Well, certainly for... Yeah, uh, I mean... Go ahead, Amy. Sorry. Uh, no, Novak had a tremendous tournament, uh, by the way, uh, and and you know that it mattered to him because in the final against Nadal, after losing the first set, he came out and freaking nailed the second set. So it, it's it, knowing that he would have to play a third set if he did that. So I think it's just um, a testament to how these great players when they're in the moment they don't want to lose and it really doesn't matter if they're playing in somebody's backyard or if they're playing in the final of a slam they want to win it's it's and it's called it's work habits it reminds me again of another thing again i learned a lot from jimmy connors and i think the smartest too he said if you play every match like it's the big match when the big match comes you're ready and this is i may slip this in that's a really good recreational piece of advice that's why i think it's important for recreational players when they play their practice matches to simulate match play as much as possible. I mean, so we're not like chit-chatting and, and, you know, and, and laughing and doing these things to kind of, the same way uh, a musician would do that on a, um, with a recital, you know, to prepare for a recital. You wouldn't be like you know, laughing and singing while you were 
doing a piano recital, you would be bearing down on the piano. So, and these guys, it, it just really, really impressive week in Rome. And of course we're gonna say, oh yes, this seems to bode well for them in Paris, we, we think. For sure. Well, I was so impressed with the fact that uh, Novak didn't give up and use the excuse that was built in for him coming into this match. The fact that he bounced back and played a great second set, Nadal had a drop-off in, in level for sure, and it resulted in a 6-1 in favor of Novak, but he very much could have thrown in the towel there. And uh, I'm alluding to the scheduling, of course, and the fact that yeah. while while yes, it was it was Novak's fault, and, and he said that, those are his words, it was his fault entirely that that Sinego match turned out to be such a, a long one. Uh-huh. Uh, but still, he had to play two matches in two days, Tsitsipas is just so formidable and then go and play Sinego. It ended up being, um, it ended up being hours and hours of tennis and then having to play the very next day for, uh, you know, an afternoon start in Rome. He had, he could have had every right in his mind. He had that built in excuse to say, okay, I dropped a tough physical first set. I'm not going to be able to win this match and go away quietly in the second set. And he didn't do that. And then he fought very hard up until losing that two all game in the third set. There were Djokovic fans who said that, look, uh, I I almost um, don't really care if he makes the final or not. Like, I don't want him to get hurt. I don't want him to get run down. Um, But for the fact that Novak had Rafa by two in the head-to-head, and now with this win, Rafa moves just within one. I think it's 29-28, Gil. So, uh, but for that fact, they were happy to just have, a lot of them were happy to just have Novak rest. But what makes him so great is, you know, that's not his mentality. That's not how he thinks. But this is the competitor mentality. This is, the, this is what all, uh, the pros, I mean, the very best generate the results that do it, but that's what being a pro tennis player is. And that's where I think, you know, work habits and practice and competing. And if it's easy to bag a Rome final, see, come, you might as well then bag a French quarter yeah. or French semi. And so it's just about work habits and, and commitments. And also I think it's, it's interesting these days, um, players have far more resources for understanding precisely how to recover. I mean, Novak probably had, well, Novak's team probably knew exactly, okay, we got this other match. We got this time in between. Here's the electrolyte. Here's the drink. And here's after Senegal. Here's the ice bath. You know, I was talking with a um, someone who played in the 70s and 80s. I was talking with this person recently. And in their time, they didn't know. It was all trial and error. Okay, I just had the big win. Do I go for a run? Do I take a shower? Do I take a bath? Do I have a massage? You know, what's, they, they didn't know the sequence of all these things. And now look at how someone like Novak probably has this down to a science. Okay, the match ends. Here's the massage. Here's here's the light massage. Here's the stretch. Here's the bike. Here's the ride the bike. Here's the ice bath. Da da da. Get the get the special protein. Whatever you know, everything is lined up for them, so the recovery can be as efficient and productive as possible. And that's pretty neat too. And the the upside for us is we get great tennis. I mean, look how much great tennis these guys gave us this week. How many engaging rallies? I mean, that's the Nago match. That was just oh, yeah. fantastic. And you see the crowd is back. So the remember, wow, that we missed that. And of course, how great you see in a place like Rome, where the fans are cheering on this uh, Italian. It makes such a big difference to have a crowd. I guess the the question that I think 
I need to ask because, you know, it's, it's going to unfortunately be a big, a bigger part of how people talk about the match versus its actual effects. But uh, do you think that Novak was fully recovered or do you think that the scheduling uh, did play a factor and, and he was fatigued. I know it's hard to speak in absolutes on these things, but th- this is going to be uh, what is going to surround a lot of the, the fodder between especially the fan bases, those who uh, have, uh, have a, a partial view of this rivalry. It's going to be, okay, did, did Novak lose? Beca- did Novak have less of a chance because he played such a stuffed schedule and Nadal was asked about this before the match just to throw it out there. And he said, it won't be the factor. It shouldn't be the factor. I've played a lot too, which he did just earlier on in the tournament. He was also, Nadal was also roughed up. I mean, well, both players were playing on a court that had all sorts of divots and weird uh, situations. And um, Rafa opened up a scab, you know, tumbling over again that he had previously tumbled over, but um, my answer to that, Gil, is actually um, probably, you know, fatigue against two of the Titans, um, fatigue is going to be a factor. Uh, however, um, I have perceived something, and I, I want to go back and take a closer look at it, but I have perceived something in Novak's game on clay that um, I think he's going to have to address if he really, really wants to vie for Roland Garros and, and beating Rafa and solving the Rafa riddle on clay. And that is... Um, the forehand jam, the shot hit to his forehand closer, not out wide, but closer. That for Novak, he seems to either make errors there or walk into Rafa's trap, um, give a weak reply on that forehand jam that Rafa is then able to control the point. Are you talking about the return or a regular rally? Really rally, but it can be the return as well. But I'm really talking about rallies. So you, you're you opining that in a rally, the portal to Novak might be, um, it's like a baseball pitcher, to pitch him tight because he can't, on the run, he can do something maybe and tilt the court in yep. a way. So if you, if you make him hit, if you hit his four, if you hit to his forehand to A, to the Y, to his forehand, he'll do something pretty good. But if you go middle, it's, it's not B. that. Yeah, B. B. He might, A, he might miss, which is delightful in its own right, but more significantly, maybe he won't, um, he won't generate as much uh, traction. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Think back to the Karatsev match that he lost in that final of the Serbia Open. Remember, Karatsev was just pounding him in the middle of the court. And that's where uh, the errors were coming. And that's where the the, uh, weak reply was coming for Karatsev to pounce on. 
But if Novak can, can solve this riddle, this puzzle, and just shore that up, then I, I think he's turned over a major key. But this is a really interesting thing about the contemporary foreign. And this reminds me, Gil, of a conversation I had with and Amy with, your, uh, with Gil's coach, Chris Lewitt, I was talking last week. That is what they call to hit that well requires the practice, I guess, even more if you're hitting it from C. What do they call it? the The inside out, the invertido? How do they, that's what they call it in, in Spain. Like Nadal, in his case, he's moving to his right because he's a left-hander. But Novak, this gets the technical dilemma, just like Andy, Andy Murray even more so. Like how do you generate significant yardage hitting a forehand from the middle of the court? Mm-hmm. And Nadal, Nadal does that like no one in the history of the sport. He moves to his right and he's generating tremendous everything with it. And your point, Amy, which is interesting, is that Novak, he might, not, he might make errors because he's trying to go for too much, but his technique, which is kind of this fairly efficient, compact swing, isn't getting the racket head speed. So I think what we right. should look for as Roland Garris gets underway is how productive is Novak hitting his forehand from B and maybe even C. Yeah. Let's uh, let's define that for for viewers and and listeners. A, B, C. There. Yeah. So Novak's out wide forehand would be A, the a forehand that he would hit from the center hash to uh, midway between the sideline and the center hash. That chunk in the middle would be B, and then C, and then his out wide backhand would be D. Yeah, so forehand winners in this match, 26 for Nadal, 11 for Djokovic. And uh, what we saw, that's what we're going to see a lot of the time on this surface because uh, Nadal does have a better plus one game, is generating more easily from the middle of the court. I think that Novak is looking a a little bit better than he has in the last couple of years, actually with his sustained aggression. I think he's hitting his forehand a little bit spinnier to me. Remember in the RG final in, uh, in 2020, when he tried to get aggressive, the forehand got really, really flat. And I think he's doing a better job right now of hitting, you know, hitting that clay court forehand where you're spinning it, you're looping it, but you're trying to swing as violently and as fast as you possibly can. And I think I thought that he attacked Nadal's backhand pretty well in that pattern, but he didn't quite have the finish in him that Nadal had. So you saw Rafa win a lot of points from defensive positions. I, but I think it's also a matter of not just hitting, not, not for Novak so much hitting winners as much as generating court positioning, you know, putting the ball in places that pin Nadal and not and putting in places that don't make it easy for Nadal to do things. And again, this is the, the dilemma. This is, this is what's so great about tennis is nobody gets everything. Nobody well, has the problem. I, I I'm going to say, I thought, I thought Novak did that well in this match. I thought he, uh, he did pin Nadal in the backhand corner. Right, it's but just, not... he needs to find that point. He needs to finish. Well, uh, but, but Rafa had the chess move, Gil, uh, ahead of that, which was he hit, Rafa hit forehand down the line, kind of that, you know, curving, curvature kind of shot that is low percentage. Yeah, but, but I'm I, talking about when Novak goes cross court into Nadal's backhand. Oh, backhand. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah, but that, but, no, that when Rafa hits that, I think that's low percentage at all for Nadal, not for Nadal. 
I mean, it's lower, it's less percentage than his cross court, but we're that, back to the forehand, right? Yeah, when Nadal whips his forehand <laughs> down the line, that's just lesser, that's less, less percentage than his cross court. But Nadal, yes. this is for Nadal, but it's still pretty high margin. It's, and this yes. is the Novak, this is the Novak conundrum against Nadal on clay because Nadal is getting more time. I mean, we, we should, we should get it, we should buy ourselves a telestrator. So we can, yeah. <laughs> especially yeah. when a lefty is involved, because it's like, yeah, right. because it's, it's so much easier to that's why we, we do A, B, C, D, because when you start talking forehand, backhand, then, you know, a lefty versus righty, it's confusing. But if you just talk about the zones of the court, it's the same for everybody. But with Novak, with the again, this is the thing I was saying, the, the great thing about this sport, nobody gets everything. So some things that people make their game fairly complete and these three have a certain completion themselves and they don't have certain, you know, you can't have all these kind of things. It's like, you look at the way Federer has certain volley skills and closing skills. I and mean, we talked about this before, how each of these guys closes points or seeks to end points and the things they have. And so the, if the upside of Novak is this balance and this penetration, which makes him so good on hard court and grass, I mean, it explains why he does so well in Australia because that flat ball, is mm -hmm. attaining traction, but yeah. on clay, a flat ball isn't all it's cracked up to be. I mean, you need certain types of arc and margin and and some and, and sometimes something other than depth. I mean, and, and speaking of that, Joel, um, this was one that I, I just thought of as I was watching the replay at the very end. So I wrote the story a couple years ago, right before the pandemic, actually, that. Novak has developed this serve and a half for his second serve. So it's like not in terms of speed, it's not a, a traditional slower second serve, but it's not a first serve type speed, but it's fast. It's a lot faster. And, and that has brought him titles. But I started thinking, is that hybrid serve that he's been using for second serve, is that mitigated on clay? I think he, I think it totally is. I think he's abandoned it. I think now, so I think the serve you're talking about, he hits with slice to yeah. the righty forehand, right? A, yeah. a lot of the time, which yeah. is completely, completely untraditional. But I think on clay, um, he's realizing it's completely ineffective and he's trying to hit his kick serve and it's very slow. He double faulted um, as well, probably too much for his liking, especially in the first set. He went three straight games with a double fault. And the five all game, it finally came back to ultimately hurt him in uh, to the extent where Nadal broke and served for the first set. So here's a question. Here's an interesting thing for uh, considered with Novak. Okay. His play that works against Nadal is when Novak hits his backhand cross court to Nadal's forehand and then can open up the court. So, all right. Why don't you run around some forehands? Because in a way, if you, if you took it, if you took it just a neutral view and said, okay, which Novak shot is more penetrating, forceful, his cross-court backhand or his inside-out forehand? Inside-out forehand. No, but no, but Novak. Novak I know. Shot. Well, but I... He needs I, it to be his inside forehand, but in a way, he's had his best success against Nadal at times with his cross-court backhand. So you almost want to say, no, go ahead, run okay. around forehand. I I'm think it was an inside-out forehand, though, that Novak hit that cost him the first set. I could be wrong about that. But, but it's, he, just, it's a shot that's less – he hits it pretty darn well. But the Nadal, and you said about the lefty aspect, Amy, inside-out 
to Nadal and then to his forehand, to his forehand, but Novak's cross-court backhands. It's interesting how all these. Yeah. You asked a trick question. I think you asked a trick question. I did. If, if Novak comes around and hits a forehand, it's better offensively, but he's out of position. Novak doesn't want that. Novak wants to cover the court and he's got a tremendous backhand. So that's why I think he, he likes to stand there and, and just hit a backhand. But on, on clay, I think he's more apt to actually run around and hit the forehand. He's definitely more apt, but the question is, then it's become productive because you're right. It's like you talk about, you know, Nadal, Nadal is just a series of landmines because the yeah. thing he does, the margins he has, and the whole lefty factor. I mean, this is, I, we, I mean, as a, as a left-hander myself, who's never hit a four, who could, <laughs> you watch Nadal. A coach once did a thing for me. A coach did a very nice thing for me. He said, I'm going to show you how to hit the contemporary forehand other than your, your Eastern forehand. And he showed me some things. And after a while, I was getting some, you know, a little bit of rotation. He says, okay, now imagine doing that, hitting it with four times as much rotation and doing it for four hours. And I'll give you an idea of what it's like to be Nadal. Yeah. You know? It's like, it's just so remarkable. I mean, this is what's so great about great athletes, whether it's seeing someone like a Steph Curry or a Tom Brady, it's like, this is remarkable skills or, or Novak too. Like the things Novak does that are so remarkable, but then how it plays into what Nadal does. It's, it's, it's a tricky matchup. I want to get to um, the, the head to head real quick and just uh, a macro point on this uh, since 2017, the beginning of 2017, Djokovic is unbeaten against Nadal on hard court. Nadal is unbeaten against Djokovic on clay court. Uh, they both had their, their slam blowouts in their respective favorite majors. <laughs> this is becoming, uh, I don't want to slander it, okay? It's, it's been good stuff, but this is becoming a rather predictable head-to-head, and it's arguably the greatest rivalry in, in the history of, of men's tennis. That's very arguable, but I said arguably. Um, why has this been so predictable? Like, how, how do we feel about the fact that this is getting very straightforward? Well, it's like, so you're saying it's like a home at home series, right? But there's no surprises. No one, I think they're not playing to... each other well on their, uh, against, you know, who they're all, they keep holding serve on their favorite surfaces. Right. So to it's speak. a home and home. It's like I beat you and, and, and the outliers occasionally when I beat you on the road, I, I think, I think it's also, look, when you're good, as the better you get, the more you're aware of your, your skill deal and you leverage your asset and you leverage your asset and that's what your asset. And then, so that's, Novak has made himself so great. And you, you obviously refer, particularly a place like Australia that fits into all his stuff and the Dow. And then there's familiarity. So the surprise thing is off the table too. And, and this is a dilemma in tennis more than a team sport. In team sport, you make a trade, you bring in the enforcer, you, you shake things up more. But in a way, it's, it's, it's almost built to be that way because of who they each are and how great they are. I don't know. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that, Amy? That the great uh, matchup or the great equalizer would be grass. And we know <laughs> that they've played some humdingers on grass. So, um, I, you know, I, that's why I brought up that thing about um, – the forehand jam for Novak, because I definitely think that it's within each of their power to defeat the other one on the other's preferred surface. It's just a matter of um, 
the puzzle and, and making the adjustment. Um, and uh, I have no doubt that Novak will try to do it for Roland Garros this year. He'll try to solve the puzzle. He came close today. Yeah. Although I'm, I'm still, I'm not, I'm still not feeling it. We'll, we'll discuss that um, soon. We don't need to do that now. Cause we have a couple of weeks uh, until the French, it, it kind of supports my, my theory though, this pattern, I, and I know this is a little bit out there. It's something that we could never prove, but my feeling in the late career of Novak Djokovic or the recent career, I'll say is that he's getting worse on clay and better on hard, fast, hard and grass. That's just, I feel like that's the direction his game is going in. And that might exacerbate what we're seeing. In other words, I just don't think the 2011 to 2016 version of Djokovic on clay really exists anymore. And that's been my theory. I have a theory. Oh, but but they that. can they can change. I mean, add- they can flip it. They can He's just go, ahead. Okay. go ahead, Joel. Go ahead. Which is that the um it's not just so the Novak's getting the Novak's getting worse on clay. The competition is always improving. So there are more things that if we, if you took the sample base of 2011 to 2016, who he was vying with and he was winning titles, they're not as good. Thanks to him. That's what's interesting. These three have created people who challengers. So there are more people who can make life. Hard. There wasn't a carrot seven, 2013. There wasn't someone who played that. There wasn't a Berrettini. There wasn't that level of skill and power. It was it's so, so Novak, you know, the people you come up with, uh, of your peer group, that those are your guys. And then along come these others who are younger and faster and stronger and fighting age. So, so and Novak had skill-wise far more distance between himself and the others on, at Australia. It's a little bit like we would talk about Federer and grass. Is, is, is Roger worse on grass because he's only won Wimbledon twice this day, you know, two or three times this decades compared to the other times he won it and uh it's just the college of the competition gets better too so that makes it harder as well and of course i see it through an analytics lens it's just really been the last four to five years that so many players are using the analytics more than they did back then so you know the patterns and and the uh, and both both novak and rafa use them so um, it just becomes more defined where to find the errors and, and how to construct the points. But that's also why I think that the puzzle is solvable. So we'll see. All right. Um, I, I would say if we go back and watch some of the old uh, Novak uh, against Rafa matches in, in Rome and we go in the archives and we, we have a bunch to choose from, I think we're going to see a much more physical brand of tennis that Novak had a better shot at winning. Um, he definitely did. Compared he, to he, now. did. he did. Yeah. He did. But, and then you have to look at how Nadal enhances himself and the things he does. And I think Nadal's yeah. shot, if Novak's shot of upside is the inside out forehand, Nadal's has been the down the line forehand. I mean, that's the shot that when Novak started to beat Rafa, that was a shot that Rafa knew he needed to make better way back 10 years ago. And he did it well in the third set. Uh, Let's talk about Federer after the break. Roger Federer returns this week in Geneva. He'll play the winner of Jordan Thompson and 
Andujar, Pablo Andujar, who's who's hyphenated in flash score tennis. I've never seen it. Apparently, he's Andujar Alba, which I've never seen in my oh. life. I guess it's like a Nadal Pereira. Anyway, um, Roger Federer. I mean, look, I I would say he as long if he plays Roland Garros, then Geneva was a success. It's my take on it. What if he doesn't play Roland Garros? Is Geneva? What is then? What then? Then Geneva. I mean, Billy's ar- didn't work. He's already said he's going to play. Are you? Are you saying that he last may time? Not- well, yeah, because last time he played Doha, and that wasn't supposed to be the only tournament that he was going to play um, over the hard court swing. But that turned into okay, I'm not actually ready yet. So that's why my outlook on this is. If he plays the French, then Geneva was a success. And it has nothing to do with wins and losses. <laughs> All right. I see. Well, look, Geneva, this, this whole clay thing for him for better, I think, is five matches. Get in five matches. See what happens in Geneva. On to Roland Garros. Stay healthy. I, I also have this picture of, of Roger tuning in to some degree to this all this action in Rome we just saw, seeing his his two main rivals just knock themselves out over a whole week. And I could just get this picture of Roger in his kitchen, you know, helping himself to some chocolate or something and saying, wow, yeah. I played that tournament. Is that 15 years ago? Rafa and I played a fifth set tiebreaker final. Who was that? America? That was me. I mean, it's like, that seems to him, it seemed like ancient Roman history just a long, long time ago. And now I think he's thinking, remember, you know, remember he's, He's five, six years older than those guys, and he just wants to keep himself healthy for Wimbledon. That's what it's all about. Well, when when was the last time that Roger played on clay? What was his last match? That he lost remember? to Nadal in the semifinal. Yes. I mean, he played Roland Garros in 2019, and he made it all the way to sem- to the semifinals, and he ro- lost to Rafa. No shame in that. The guy's still good. He's still a good player. Yeah, he's still. So I have some expectations. But not about not about Geneva, right? You're saying Joel's five is a low ball. His five matches is a low ball. Yeah. Well, I'm saying we actually I shouldn't predict because I we don't know what we're going to see from Roger. He's taken a lot of time off, but the guy can play on clay. I mean, it's not, um, it's not as if, you know, he's never won Roland Garros or he doesn't know what he's doing. He's European, you know, so I have some expectations for Roger. I, I, I think he could very well win Geneva. Um, but again, I don't know because we just haven't seen him in, in terms of a fitness level. Right. But also I, I just, to me, to me, I use five is just kind of like, if he plays five, he'll feel, okay, I, I put in some nice yards on clay. I got in some match play. I'm pretty healthy on to Hala, on to grass. Let's go Wimbledon and see how it goes. And, and that's fine. So um, we'll see how the, how the weather gods are. I mean, again, again, the thing we saw in Rome that was so vivid, different weather, different days and clay and Harding. You see how in the women's match, how, how Barty retired, in the second set of her match and clearly that was influenced by by weather and conditions so we'll see how Federer feels because that you want to be you just want to be feeling it pretty good on clay and if there's a slightest warning sign I mean and then you saw how 
how Rafa, when he tripped over that nail, I mean, I'd never seen him more for vociferous in the wake of something, you know, he was upset about that. And he knows that was his whole, his body. And, and, and in that sense, you would ask him about preparing for Roland Garros. <laughs> in that sense, he wouldn't say, oh, this, I'm just playing Rome. He knew, you know, that, that could take down his whole year, that kind of injury. A very good barometer. I was really happy to see Casper Ruud in the lineup for Geneva because Roger beat Casper in 2019 at Roland Garros. He demolished him. Well, some time has gone by and Rude's game has really become kind of a Rafa light type game. And he does really well on clay. We've seen it this season. Um, so if they meet again on clay, Roger and Casper Rude will be able to do, have more of an apples to apples comparison. Uh, to, to get yeah. a good barometer. That would be interesting to see. It isn't a, um, a Casper awakening. Yeah. Rude is, Rude is super good. And, uh, he, uh, he likes to save his body. He didn't play Rome. I, I thought that was interesting for, uh, and, and, uh, if you look at his schedule, he doesn't pack it, which I find fascinating. Most players at, at his level like to do that. Well, you know what I'm noticing now? It's funny about 15, 20 years ago. I, when I saw Sand and Stolly win the U S open doubles, it was the first time the son of a world-class player had ever won a grand slam. And in the, until then you didn't see too many children of former pros in the pros, partially it was because their dads and moms hadn't played in here with money. But now we're seeing more players whose parents had world-class backgrounds like um, Sitsis Pass. And uh, uh, now I'm going to get Corda. to pronounce his name. What? Sebastian Corda. <laughs> Sebastian Corda and, and, and Rude. So there's a little more cognition going on there, probably about how you manage things, scheduling and training and lots of things. There might be some interesting knowledge going on that's different than if a player just went out on their own and entered every tournament possible so the dad might say hey you're still young manage your schedule you don't have to play every week pay attention to the body again there's so much more awareness now of what it takes to have a, a lengthy career yeah absolutely uh, by the way guys this was just texted to me while we were sitting here talking um today novak and i'm guessing he said it after the match he says the next gen is rafa me and maybe roger <laughs> so i think that says like a lot of people have said why are you guys doing this show now on the three like they're at the end of their careers well according to novak they're the next gen so <laughs> they, whether they're at, where they're at in their careers doesn't diminish their interest. I mean, I still hear stories right. about the Beatles. The Beatles, right. they, they broke up 50 years ago. So that means people are going to have to listen to us talk about those three for another 50 years. Yeah. A, yeah. retro <laughs> show, a retro show on uh, looking back on the three's greatest hits. So, so Novak said that about, uh, that's a good quote. And Novak's going to- Maybe uh, Roger. Maybe Roger. <laughs> he's got a- um, Yeah. He's got a- uh, He's got a birthday next week, Novak too. So uh, he'll be he'll be 34. So uh, yeah, next gen, whatever. Djokovic and Nadal had a joke in the locker room after their semifinals. They kind of uh, looked at each other and said, "Well, it's the old guys again. How about that?" So we get another meeting between them, and we'll see if they can continue uh, at Roland Garros because it was not it was not easy, and it was so impressive how they ran through their respective draws. Quite a spectacle and just a reminder of how special 
these guys are. That'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. Leave a rating and a review on Apple. That's a big deal for us. We really appreciate that. And if you're watching on YouTube, comment, like, subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of three.